Support for Inquisitive comes from Cards Against Humanity, Campaign Monitor, and Fracture. Welcome back to Inquisitive Behind the App. I'm Mike Hurley. This is the second episode of our special series about iOS apps in the App Store. If you haven't yet heard the first installment, go back and listen to the last episode. You can go to relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 27 if you want to find out more. Today, we're going to look at the economy of the App Store, an economy that's bigger than Hollywood. This was a claim made by industry analyst Horace Dedieu after digging into Apple's 2014 earnings reports. He analyzed that in that year, Apple paid out more money to app developers than was generated by the US box office. The app economy is growing exponentially faster than Hollywood. Dedieu reports that in 2014, the revenue generated by the App Store grew by 50% to $10 billion a year. Since the App Store launched in 2008, a total of $28 billion has been paid out to developers in all history, making 2014's total 40% of the App Store's total earnings that there's ever been. It has eclipsed every other year, and it shows absolutely no signs of slowing down. In late 2014, Apple released a report talking about how many people are supported by the App Store. They claim that this number is over 600,000 individuals in the United States alone. But these jobs aren't just for developers. We're talking designers, project managers, marketeers, and more. Recent figures from the movie industry indicate that there are only 347,000 people employed in the US that work within it. The App Store is supporting close to twice the amount of people that Hollywood does. In their report, Apple cites a study undertaken by AppNation that projects that the overall app economy will exceed $150 billion worldwide by 2017. To try and put this into some perspective, if the App Store was a country, it would have the GDP of Bangladesh. Today, I want to look at how developers got started in the App Store and how they have spread the word about their apps, in turn, building their businesses. Over time, these ideas and practices will have changed. I want to see why, and I want to see how people have adapted. What cannot be ignored is that there are now people whose livelihood revolves around the App Store. Eight years ago, this was an industry that didn't exist. Of course, there was already an existing software industry, people making applications and programs for other desktop computers primarily. And this same industry still exists today. People still develop for Windows PCs, they still develop for the Mac. But now we have this monumental other one that goes alongside it, eclipsing the rest. This is the App Store, but also the effect that the App Store has had on the mobile industry at large. We now have the Google Play Store, the Amazon App Store, and many others. These are now a huge part of where the resources for software development go. I wasn't. I never sold software before I got into the App Store. And maybe in some ways that's the biggest difference that I see. That's David Smith. You may remember David as the guy who was developing apps for the iPhone before he even owned one. David has over 160 apps in the store, so I think he has felt its impact. If I wanted to have put you know, a piece of software in a CompUSA, the process and effort that would have taken is pretty substantial. And obviously there was, you know, online distribution wasn't, wasn't the, the app store wasn't the first thing to do it. 
but it seems like what they did is it made it it made the barrier to entry very low and it opened it up to a lot of different people and it put everybody on the same playing field in many ways. Uh, like I remember back in the early days of the app store, the thing that was most striking to me is that the companies that I was competing against and in some ways, you know, beating in terms of I was, you know, doing better ranks than them and things were huge companies that they were at one point, you know, like the, the company that I was, the app that I was kind of neck and neck with in the, in the charts was the Amazon Kindle app. Uh, in the books, in the books category, and I just remember being so struck by like I'm a guy in my basement with a with a MacBook Pro, and here's my app that's competing neck and neck with a co- you know a I don't know several billion dollar company, one of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah, and, and I, the thing that the App Store did is it meant it didn't matter who you were. Like maybe that it helps Apple, uh, Amazon in terms of their marketing capital, but functionally in the store the the store doesn't care who you are and i think that had a very powerful impact in terms of the way software developers and just people in general think of software that it isn't necessarily something that is made by you know big corporations with large teams in big cubicle farms kind of churning out something that you can have these you know just people in their basement writing software and they're able to compete, you know, sort of head to head with bigger, serious companies. Now, here's Russell Ivanovich. He's one of the people behind Shifty Jelly. They make apps for the App Store and the Google Play Store, including Pocket Casts and Pocket Weather. I mean, if you think about previous to to the App Store, if you, even disregarding mobile, if you just look at the desktop, the model was, you know, you'd find an app that you like. It'd probably be, you know, sixty to a hundred dollars. It would probably have annual updates that that you pay for. There was probably some kind of of trial version that you got and you know once you found the the apps that you like i guess they'd they travel on word of mouth and they'd have sort of various sales but every year you'd be you know giving money to the developer and it was normally a, a significant amount of money but i guess what the app store did is it brought in a lot more developers and it for one reason or another you can say it was apple you can say you know it was the developers but that does end up driving the price down and so you, things that were you know sixty dollars ninety dollars one hundred and fifty dollars now $10 is a premium price. And now the idea is that to make the kind of money you used to be making, you have to significantly increase your volume. So now, you know, I'm sure there used to be some apps that were, you know, very niche and they maybe sell 1,000, 10,000 copies and that was extremely successful. But it seems like in today's distribution model, if you want to be successful, you need to have a much lower price with a, a much higher volume. When the App Store was first introduced, there were not millions of apps available. There were thousands if not hundreds, many people or companies had not yet taken the bet on the App Store because the market was unproven. So when the App Store launched, and for some time afterwards, it was an extremely exciting time for the people that were there. I mean, in the first few days, everything cost money, and and it was no big deal. Consumers were in the same, like, crazy, you know, Apple fan frenzy as developers were, and so it was really easy to make money on the App Store during that first year. It was really easy. That's Marco Arment, developer of Overcast and previously Instapaper. Instapaper was his first submission to the App Store. Yeah, there, there, there were not that many apps. Like I bought so much garbage on the very first day because it was like, <laughs> well, it's there, and I want to try out. You know, what, what can my phone do now? It's like all these crazy things your phone can do for five bucks more and and ten bucks more. And and man, I bought so much garbage. Every, we all did. I mean, everyone did that those first few weeks, those first few months. I actually took a look at some of my first purchases in the App Store. 
They included Facebook, MySpace, and AOL Instant Messenger, but also an app that made phone calls using a rotary dialer interface, a flashlight app, and iPint, an app that made it look like you were drinking a beer from your phone. Like the race to the bottom didn't really happen until a few months in. Uh, it th- those first few months were, and, and really the first year, it was really easy to make money. In Australia, the App Store was a, a very, very new thing. You know, there was 300 applications and there was almost no local applications whatsoever. So it appeared, I think, in there was a section called New or something like that, and it was Pocket Weather. And, you know, I was kind of monitoring it during the day and it entered the top 100, I think, within a few hours. And then it was 89 and then 70-something. And I'm pressing, trying to press refresh on this phone that's connected to the 2G network and none of the icons are loading or anything. But every hour or so... You know, I'm checking back in. It's going up and up and up. It was, you know, number one in the app store. And all these people came up to me. They look, your your app, it's number one. Check that out. And they're all like, what does it mean? Are you a millionaire? And and I honestly had no idea. I had no app sales, no data, no anything to go on. I'm like, you know what? I don't know. This episode is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. Instead of reading an ad, they've interviewed a bunch of independent game designers about what it's like to work with iOS games. This week, they spoke to Benedict Fritz, the creator of Dootsky. Designing a game for an iPhone, what were the design constraints? Um, you know, shorter playtime, uh, you kind of can't make things too complicated easier like simpler input you don't have lots of buttons to mess with so the input ended up just being you know left side tap right side tap when i try and go back and play classic pc games from the 90s they are so overly complex that it i can't play them like i go back and i try and play them and i I don't have the instruction manual and then it just is impossible. And sometimes I wonder, you know, are we going to look back at the games from now and kind of feel similarly like console games and PC games are so complex and crazy and the same simplifications that we saw kind of from 90s PC games to 2000s console games, I think we're kind of seeing that distillation happening again going to phone games. I think a lot of games revel in their simplicity and there doesn't necessarily have to be any depth for them to be entertaining and for them to fulfill their purpose. The experience of playing Dragon Age for 80 hours is never going to fill the same space as the experience of playing a game on the train on your way home from work. Do you want to tell people about your game Dudeski? Sure, Dudeski is an arcade skiing adventure. You're skiing down a mountain, there's different sections, you're unlocking shortcuts, there's secrets scattered about the mountain, and uh, you're trying to get to the bottom of the mountain and become a shred lord. That's awesome. When I was looking up the first apps that I installed on my iPhone for when I was talking to Marco, two of them, Tap Tap Revenge and Twinkle, were published by a company called Tapulous. Story of Tapulous is a very interesting one, and I was lucky enough to talk to Guy English, who was there at the time, and could tell me about it. A, a, a company called Tapulous was created, and what they did by this guy, uh, Archer Cram, who'd been, he's, whatever, he's been around in the business for ages, he's one of those Silicon Valley guys. Um, he ended up creating this company called Tapulous, and what he did is get a bunch of money, and he bought out uh, many, 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 many um, jailbreak apps, including one called Tap Tap Revenge. Uh, was it called Revenge at the time? It was Revolution at the time, then it became Revenge. And they had about, they had a lot of apps. And um, my friend Mike Lee 
uh, asked me for help because he'd been attached to the, he, he was working with the company at the time and he asked me if I wanted to, to help out on some stuff because um, he, he, Brent Simmons, Chris Parrish and myself and a couple of other people I think uh, have been working on a card game, uh, a, a poker game called Lemur Poker for uh, for the iPhone. It never shipped. So we'd been in touch and he knew that I, I was excited about working on the phone. Um, and so he got Tapulus to, to bring me out to uh, Palo Alto. And the original plan was to, I think they wanted to ship 30 of these jailbreak apps on day one for the App Store. This was very shortly after the announcement of the SDK. And um, what they were going to do is basically port all of the apps from the, the jailbroken SDK, not even SDK, the, 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 the pre-SDK version of the iOS libraries, uh, onto the, the first generation of the SDK, and then ship them all. I remember the meeting. And remember telling him it was kind of crazy because you can't <laughs> you can't have seven people ship thirty apps. It's just not going to happen. Um, so it got pared down to about three apps, and I think it was it was Twinkle, uh, Tap Tap Revenge, and um, I'm going to forget. It could be a fortune cookie app that uh, Lou Mantia did the design for. Louis also worked with me on uh, Tap Tap Revenge, um, which was. Uh, the, the, the first one was very much, as I just described, it was entirely basically just a port and a patch up of, um, pre SDK code, uh, you know, and it, it eventually evolved, evolved, but the, the, the first one I worked closely with, uh, Louis on, but, uh, Nate True, uh, was the guy that created it. Um, uh, but man, the game was good. It, that was a lot of fun. It 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 was it was phenomenal. It was mind bending trying to get that to work properly, but but it was it was a really good game. And you know, I wet nursed it, but you know, it's it's Nate True's baby, and he did he did, did a really great job getting that done. I, I can't even remember the numbers for Tap Tap Revenge when they started. It went into the millions very quickly, which is kind of mind blowing. And and keep in mind that I'd come from places like Ubisoft, uh, which you know do a fair. They they do large numbers at times. I worked on a Star Wars game. Uh, that did not do millions. <laughs> um, it it was it was eye opening. Changed the way that I thought about software and how people relate to it. Really. I think it changed the mind. I, I think it changed everybody's opinion about software, to, to be honest. I think software became a thing. Coming up, I want to take a look at how developers get the word out about their product in an extremely overpopulated market. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to thank our second sponsor of this week's episode, and that is our friends over at Campaign Monitor. Campaign Monitor deliver an elegant email marketing service for designers, agencies, and businesses. More than 2 million people, over 120,000 companies around the world, love Campaign Monitor for its simple and beautiful user experience, pixel-perfect design, and 24-7 global support. Campaign Monitor's customers love their email building tool. It's called Canvas, and it helps you create elegant, responsive templates that look incredible on all screen sizes. And you can even target your content according to your customers' preferences. 
Then, once you've sent out your campaigns, you can see how they perform in real time with Worldview. There's just something super cool about seeing your subscribers pop up on this amazing world map as they're interacting with your emails. Campaign Monitor works great with teams. It's super easy to collaborate with clients or the people that you work with. You can really easily set permissions, rebrand the interface, and even manage billing for client projects all from within the app. If you want to find out more about Campaign Monitor, go check them out and sign up for a free account right now at campaignmonitor.com. Campaign Monitor, helping you send beautiful emails to get better results. I like to think of the App Store as basically like a department store. There is the store owner, Apple, that owns the building and curates what goes inside. It's their land. There are the brands inside the store that display their wares, the concessions that have differing sizes and they show their products. Some have a huge corner, some just have one table off to the side. And inside the store, there are confusing levels that you have to traverse to try and find what you're looking for. Some things are over here, some things are over there, but it's difficult if you're going in and just trying to find one specific thing. But most importantly, there's the store window. This is where products are featured and displayed in pride of place for the world to see. What goes in the store window of Bloomingdale's or Selfridges is what they want the world to see. Companies will fight to get their placement there, and this placement is extremely limited. What goes in the store window will sell, and this is exactly the same for app developers. And that store window is the feature page right on the front of the app store. As the amount of apps in the store have grown, the ability to have your app featured front and center has become a lot more difficult. There was a time when all you needed to do was put out an update of your app and you'd have a good shot of being featured. Today, that's not the case. When I think back to the old days of the App Store, I, I'm not going to say I long for them, but my job in, on the marketing side was so much easier. Uh, like in that first couple of years of the App Store, there used to be like when you'd go to, when you'd open up a category, or actually I think they may even have it for the overall store. But you'd go to the App Store and there'd be like a last updated list, and one of the biggest drivers of your of your downloads was appearing high in that list. And that list was basically every time you didn't you submitted an update to the store, you got to the top of the list. And I remember that I would. You know, I'd submit an update to an app and it would sit high on that list for like a good week in terms of the volume of updates and other people doing stuff to the store was pretty low. And so, and that was largely all you had to do to get noticed. Like when I first launched many of my apps, I I, I knew nobody. It wasn't like I had contacts in the press. I didn't, I had no marketing. All I had was I take my app and I put it in the store. It showed up on that list of recently updated or new, you know, sort of new and noteworthy or just knew and it was enough there that people were just browsing that there wasn't a, they, they would find it and they would download it and they would talk about it and that difference now i mean a that part of the store is just gone now that used to be like it would be insane if they kept it there because there's probably every hour there'd be another few dozen apps appear in that list and it would be completely kind of pointless but you know, competing in a store that had a few thousand apps with maybe a few hundred being added to it um, on, a, on a whatever, on a weekly basis compared to now where it's, you know, whatever, one and a half million apps or something like that. And it wouldn't surprise me if it's, you know, a hundred apps being added every day, uh, if not more than that. 
is a totally different world because you're ne- unless you are in one of the few uh, windows where you know if you could be featured or if you rank highly, um, you're kind of invisible. And your marketing has to exist out in when you can't just rely on the store uh, to market your apps in a way that you used to be able to. If you're thinking about being featured as a dollar amount, you might be thinking, man, being featured used to get me $2,000 a day, but now it gets me $600 a day. And, you know, if you're thinking absolute amount, then, then you know, yeah, it's, it might be less today, but it, that depends more on your app and more on your general sales than because. All being featured, you know, being featured doesn't make people buy your app. It just shows more people your app's page. So they could still choose not to buy it. So whatever whatever causes people to buy or not buy your app every other day, if they if they stumble upon it somehow in, the, in a search or whatever, whatever causes them to make that decision whether to give you money or not, that those effects are still going to be in place if you're featured. You're going to have more people coming in the front door. So if your app is too expensive for what it does or there's too much competition or it doesn't or you know it's too confusing as to what it does or it doesn't sell itself well enough those are all going to be the exact same problems if you get featured or not uh so you know it's it's again it's hard to know whenever anybody talks about like relative terms of like well the app store isn't what it used to be even even what i'm saying now you know this is only based on my experiences with, with my apps and someone else with different apps has had different experiences I think, you know, back back then, being featured would approximately double your sales. Uh, maybe a little bit less than double. But, it, you know, it, it, I mean, and again, this is just my app. Like, my app sold pretty well on its own. So if your app doesn't sell very well on its own and you're featured, maybe the, the magnification would be larger from your baseline. My app sold pretty well all the time. It, the baseline was, was pretty good. Uh, and so, so being featured would, you know, roughly double it. And today with Overcast, it's about the same being featured roughly doubles it. Uh, maybe a little bit, you know, maybe like, you know, add 75%. Maybe it's not quite doubling it, but it's, it's in the same ballpark. Another key part of the App Store is, of course, the charts. If you're not being featured, but you're ranking highly on the paid or free chart, you're going to bring more people to your app, even more than the sales that got you to that high point in the first place. But like everything else to do with the App Store, this has really changed over time. I think it's way harder to, to get to number one. And I have a feeling that while some of the numbers, you know, further down the charts are no longer as, as good as they, they were, I think to get to number one, you have to, yeah, you're making more money in 2015 than you were in 2008, and it is a lot, a lot harder to get there. I mean, we've been number one in the iOS app store. We've been number one in the, in the Mac app store as well. And you definitely notice that there's, there's a huge jump from probably about number five onwards. You know, the amount of money and sales you need to be doing at that point are just exponential compared to you know, maybe five to 10 and then 10 to 20 is, is another bracket. And sometimes when you get further down, you get into the top 50, there's not a lot of, of money sort of separating some of those apps. You know, you can sell two more copies and, and move two places above someone else. So to be in the, the top five or 10, I mean, that's, that's a huge deal. Marketing is becoming a lot more of an issue for app developers. Obviously, the best way to get noticed is to get that elusive banner in the app store, but that can't be guaranteed. So what do you do? For someone like me with a slightly smaller, you know, marketing experience and budget, that used to be really powerful. Like, it's kind of crazy to think that that's really all I did for most of my apps to start with, is I just put them on the store. And there was so much interest and there was so much demand and so little supply that it just kind of took care of itself. 
Whereas now you have almost the other problem of the demand maybe is slightly higher. Like maybe there's a little bit more um, demand in terms of more phones, more people, but the supply has accelerated at, at a rate that has overtaken that any increase in demand that there might be. There are so many more apps and so many more copies and so many more things that do the same thing that that's you know, the store at the store no longer kind of self markets for you, which, you know, fair enough, but it's a very different world that um, is much harder to navigate than it used to be. What we've done so far, and we, we've tried a lot of things. We've tried Facebook ads. We've tried paid marketing, sponsoring podcasts, sponsoring blogs. Um, the thing that works best for us is word of mouth and being active on Twitter and, uh, and, and really going for, you know, once every year or two, going for a big launch that gets a lot of attention and reminds people about the app, a big major update. This is Matt Bischoff talking about how he tries to get the word out about Quotebook and Velocity, the apps that his company, Lickability, produces. Um, that's, that's what's worked for us so far, but, uh, it's, it's really dependent on the app. I think games would have to do totally different marketing than we, than the kind we do. We're kind of going after a certain kind of, certain kind of nerd, uh, people who like writing and keeping quotes. That's, that's not everybody. It's not a general, uh, general market product. It's kind of niche. So we kind of market to those folks. Patrick and Oshin from Supertop have released two apps onto the app store now, Castro and Unread. They now have their own formula for spreading the word about their app store releases. I think we have this idea that maybe helps, that would inform how we would go about all that stuff now. Um, and that's, you've seen this, like the usual sales curve for a, a newly launched app. So that like it launches and all the marketing you've done kicks in and you sell, you know, the first few days or the first few weeks go really well. And then it drops off suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see that again and again in people's numbers posts and even... When you talk to indie developers who are doing okay, like they still follow that pattern. It's just that the numbers still add up to enough over a year that it works out. Um, and so, I, I guess that's a little bit like movies, where like it has its opening weekend and it's huge, and then. Uh, so I guess what we've been thinking lately is that you need to either accept that that curve is going to be what happens no matter what. Uh, or you can try and fight against it. And if you're one strategy to fight against it would be like try and release small updates every month and like keep keep people talking about your app somehow. That's kind of what we're thinking with Unread that we'll try and release an update every month um, that has some kind of feature in it and is like it's not going to be a huge thing that'll take us weeks and weeks to build, but it'll be something worth talking about each month. Whereas for Castro two, I think we're more going to embrace the curve and try to build up, I guess hype is the only word for it. I feel like that's maybe how I would go about it now is try and talk about the app for a few months in advance of launching it and try to make connections with interested people um, long in advance of like the last two weeks before you release the app. I think that's been a, a kind of mistake that we've made before on launches before where we, I mean, we did have our list of people that we wanted to get in touch with and beta testers that we wanted to have on board, but we seemed to, we left it like far too late in the process where when you, we were getting in touch with people at that stage and looking for their feedback or for their ideas or just even letting them know that it's coming, that it's, it was always like very much like in the last week maybe or two weeks before. Um, 
whereas our plan for Castro 2 is, well, we've already started blogging about it a little bit and we're going to build that up over the coming months. Um, it's still a few months away, but we want to start talking about it openly more, blogging about it more, um, talking about it on podcasts more, doing whatever we can do, but like, with the idea being to build that up more slowly over time um, and talk about the individual different parts that we're working on rather than sending out a big press release or sending out an email in the last week and crossing our fingers. What I'm trying to highlight here is that there is no magic formula, especially at the indie level. When you don't have multi-million dollar marketing budgets, all you can do is just try some things out and see what works. There are overlaps between the ways that people try and spread the word about their apps, but the indie scene shows people trying to be nimble and experimenting with what is in their remit. Coming up, I want to talk a little bit about how the App Store has changed over time and how it has also helped completely build people's businesses. But before that, I want to take a moment to thank our final sponsor for this week's episode, and that is our friends at Fracture. Fracture is a company that prints photos directly onto glass, which has been described as kind of like hanging an iPad on your wall. The colors really pop, and they look fantastic. They come on a solid backing that's ready to mount right out of the package. They even include a screw with it for you, so you'll be able to hang it straight away. They're really affordable. They have prices starting at $15 for their small square size. They make fantastic gifts for family and friends. I've bought them for friends of my own, and they've just think they're fantastic. They do look really, really great. Fracture prints are a great way to share memories of people because they're so unique and they're so modern looking. Every single Fracture is hand assembled and checked for quality by their small team in Gainesville, Florida. And on the back, they even have a sticker where they've signed it to show you that they've checked it. If you need another reason to buy them other than them helping support this show, you can get 15% off with the code INQUISITIVE. Just go to fracture.me to check them out online. Thank you so much to Fracture for their support of this show. Maybe the best way to think about the dynamic that has changed is that when I got in, so I submitted, I, sub, I, sent, I wasn't quite in the App Store on day one, and I had an app ready, but it, like Apple, it's crazy to even think, but... Th- Apple used to take a while to approve your developer account. Um, like you, I applied for one as soon as they were available, and it just they didn't approve my account in time. Like things were so much more manual and um, like just totally different. They had no process for it. I don't think Apple really knew what they were doing in some ways. And so, you know, my app as soon as my uh, developer account was approved, a few a few months later, I submitted my app, and I've been in ever since. So it's just over six years now. Um, like back in those days, in many ways, it, like it was never this easy, but it was much more of a, if you did the right things, if you made a good app, if you built a quality thing, if you did all kind of the right things, your chance of being at least having your chance of having a chance, which is a weird way to say it, but like you could have a reasonable expectation that your app would be judged on its merits and would succeed or fail based on those versus the world we live in now, no matter how good your app is, um, it is still very, very hard to have any amount of attention, or at least to have attention, and certainly to have attention that lasts beyond maybe a splashy launch. That your app is not necessarily being judged purely on its merits; it's being judged on um, its marketing, it's being judged on its 
you know, position in search rank and things that in many ways be, are kind of outside of your control. And so if I were approaching this, you know, now thinking about like, oh, should I quit my job and go be, be an app developer? It would seem more like I was playing the lottery. It would seem more that like I wasn't embarking on something where if I do everything right, it's not a guarantee that I will succeed, but there is a reasonable expectation that if I work hard and do the right things, that I will have some modicum of success. And that's a very different place um, than just feeling like I'm going to go, I'm going to put in all the same amount of effort. Like the effort hasn't changed. If not, if anything, it's gone, the bar is higher now. Um, and yet the result is much more like you're playing the lottery that you may win. And, you know, we certainly have examples of that still, but more likely than not, you won't. Um, and so I don't think I would have been able to justify taking that jump at this point and saying like, I'm going to quit my job and go make apps. Um, but now having done it for so long and having kind of having some institutionalized uh, advantages in terms of having have, have you know apps that have been in the store for five, six years and the user bases they have and some of the things that the advantages that gives me, you know, it gives me the ability to keep doing it going forward. At the start of Shifty Jelly was um, myself and Philip. We we weren't working full-time. Oh, sorry, we were working full-time somewhere else. So we were just working, you know, basically literally from our couches. Um, we had another designer called Nathan that, that worked with us as well. And there was no salaries back then because we had no idea of even making money. So we just said, look, if we make any sales at all, this is the percentage that uh, each one of us gets. And we were, you know, extremely happy with that. And in the early days, that worked really well. And then what happened two years in is we found that, you know, we were earning the equivalent of, of full-time incomes sort of in this side thing that we're doing. And eventually we stopped ourselves and we thought, is there ever going to be another opportunity like this to just kick this off into like an actual company? Like if we really enjoy, uh, you know, what we're doing more than enterprise work and if it looks like, you know, maybe there's enough money in, in this to make a go and if we've also put, you know, a bit away in the bank like we did. Um, and that's where we decided to to make the jump. You know, let's let's turn Shifty Jelly into a company. Let's make ourselves full-time employees. So uh, Philip and I made that jump. Our designer at the time was, you know, he was trying to sort out getting a house and various other things and he was quite sort of nervous about uh, jumping in with us. So it was just Philip and I in the early days. And, um, you know, we very quickly realized we needed a designer as well so we we hired someone and that that suddenly made us three people and probably i'm trying to think about a few years sort of into that again um we realized that we were spending maybe 30 30 or so percent of our time maybe even 40 or 50 on you know answering support uh doing all the business sort of legal requirements that that come with having to run you know a serious grown-up business i mean we weren't wearing suits or anything like that. it wasn't it wasn't that bad but we looked at it and we go, well, we're developers and our company is about making products and it's also about, you know, looking after all these people that have bought our applications. And if, if we can't do all of those things, then, you know, we're just spinning our wheels. We're not going anywhere. And that's how we became four. You know, we hired initially a part-time support person that would come in, I'm going to say 20 hours a week. I'm not, I don't remember it exactly, but it was something like that. And then we quickly scaled that into a full-time position and we saw the value of that. You know, we saw how happy customers were to to get quick responses how awesome it was to be able to deal with problems you know before they turned into to huge problems and yeah it was at that point we came we became four people and that's that's the size we're we're at now um and in terms of your question of do we attribute that to the app store uh, i'd say definitely but i'd i'd say the difference is in the last few years that it's it's not just the ios app store 
you know, the majority of our income actually these days comes from the the Google Play, like the Android App Store. So, you know, it is it is down to the app stores. Like we've been in the Mac App Store, we've been in the iOS App Store, we're in the the Android Google Play Store. You know, those things combined enable us to do do what we do. App Store is an industry and a growing one. It's supported by Apple, but really driven forward by hungry and creative people. They push it to the boundaries. They work tirelessly to find new ways to build their customer base, but they have to weather the constantly changing tide of which they have little to no control. There is definitely success out there, but it's not a success that's available to everyone. On next week's episode, we're going to take a look a little more into the finances. I want to see how people feel about the 30% cut that Apple takes and also understand how developers have changed the prices of their apps over time to make themselves competitive in the market. Here's some clips of what you can expect. It was unveiled that uh, Sega was was doing Super Monkey Ball, one one of those games, um, and the price was going to be $10. And I remember I thought, that's low. But if you look at all the things Apple do for that 30%, I think it's a little bit disproportionate these days, especially in an app store with, I don't know how many millions of, of apps that, that are in there now, but you don't get a, a lot of promotion from them. You don't get any value from you know being in a storefront. Before, the average selling price was like, or the, the app was $5 on the store. So we got whatever 70% of that is. Yeah, $3.50 and... I haven't checked it in the last couple of weeks, but certainly after launch, that average was much higher. So I think it was like we were making $4 a copy on average instead of three fifty. Inquisitive is a production of Relay FM. You can find show notes and links for this episode at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 28. Inquisitive is produced by Stephen Hackett, Adina Niamtu, and me. Marco Savage is our editorial advisor. Huge thanks to everyone who has provided their time and feedback to help get this series and this episode off the ground. The music you've heard in this episode was created and provided by Brave Wave Productions. Support for this episode comes from Campaign Monitor, Fracture, and Cards Against Humanity. You can find out more about this show and all of our shows at Relay FM by visiting relay.fm. I am Mike Hurley, at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, on Twitter. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.